So when you guys have taken your seats, I'm actually going to ask Charlotte to bring up the passage we're going to be looking at today on the screen, Psalm 110. If that's too fine print for you, maybe you could open your digital Bibles or hard copy Bibles or whatever you have. So before I read this, just a um, brief setup. We have been as a church in the middle. We normally we do spend a bit of time going through books of the Bible, and actually currently we're in the middle. We just started going through the Book of Acts, which is um, shaping up to be a really exciting series. And Dave and uh, Brendan, that is our senior pastor, Dave, who's not here, but uh, Brendan, who is here, have um, been uh, introduced um, Acts chapter one and two. But what we did while the guys went away, um, as you would know if you were here last week, we were just having a pressing pause on Acts and having a little mini-series, a little taster, if you like, of what's to come in summer. So in summer, we're going to be spending a bit of time in the Psalms and just soaking up their goodness. Because as, as Rob rightly said last week, quoting a famous quote from John Calvin, they are windows on the soul. And in them, we, you know, we really find words, the words for our, uh, our struggles, the words for our joy, the words for our very relationship with God. Um, and so Rob, last week, I think he did a terrific job. Um, I know some of you feel the same way from conversations I've had in taking us through Psalm 31. Uh, But today I have something quite different, Um, uh, Psalm 110. Um, And so I'm going to begin just by reading it carefully. And this is going to take, to be honest, and I I was a little bit worried when I saw the weather report, because um, this is going to take a little bit of work, because as I hope to show you, this is not a psalm that it probably won't, unless you're quite unusual, leap off the page and bless you straight away. But it, it is a, a profoundly important psalm, as I'm going to put to you. And we just need to put in a, a little bit of work today. I hope you'll, you'll come with me uh, in, in exploring uh, the excitement of Jesus, the glorious King. And that's, that's the title I've said it on, Jesus, the glorious King. Um, so let's read Psalm 110 together. And this is the Word of God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So I'm just going to pray for the Lord's help to open our eyes to to what's before us, to open our eyes to see wonderful things in his word. Oh Lord King, splendorous King, you are indeed King in ways that we barely even glimpse I pray that those who know you already as King, Father, Father, they would be strengthened, we would be strengthened in assurance and in depth of understanding and confidence and rest in this, the work of this King, Jesus. 
I pray too, Lord, that you'd open the eyes of the hearts of those who don't know this Jesus as King. And that you would pierce, that you'd pierce all of our hearts with your word, which is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's one of the weapons of your kingship. Would you pierce hearts and Lord, would you bring conviction? Would you bring glory to this king in all his splendor? And would you use these uh, frail words? Would you open our frail minds and our, our bodies struggling with heat, with tiredness, with an unseasonal heat wave and whatever's come across our paths this week? Would you, Lord, help us to be attentive to this, your eternal word, and let it shape and bring life today, we pray, by your Spirit's power. Amen. So looking around the room, uh, I see a world divided roughly into Apple and Samsung. I've got Brendan here on his Apple. Um, a few of you still have the old hard copy notebooks, but when I came to Sovereign Grace, I was, I was actually struck by everybody having their phones out. And I actually thought it was, when I was a visitor, I thought this is quite a rude congregation and people can't even be bothered listening. They're having to text their friends or get on Facebook in the middle of the sermon. Um, and I, remember, I know Julie felt the same thing when she first came. We've had this conversation. Because back then I was still using a little um, pocket-sized notebook as well. And I wondered what was going on. And it ha- I have learned, I've been told, that actually people are taking notes. Um, I, I, I encouraged Jeff Perswell when he was here on the retreat that everyone's on their phones, you know, but they're taking notes from your sermon. He goes, yeah, some of them are on Facebook. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, but I was slow to get one of these. I mean, I now pretty much do everything through one of these little guys. I've always been slow to the mark, though, um, with technology. But one feature on Apple, which I did cotton on to on the iTunes software, I don't know if you guys have iTunes, I imagine a lot of you will, um, but I think you'll know what I'm talking about. When you, you know you can sort your songs a whole lot of different ways. You can sort them by artist, you can sort them by title or um, genre, and one of the ways you can sort them is by the number of times you've played them. So you can actually go and do like a little psychological analysis of yourself and see what comes up. And... I did this to myself and I found that my top track, and has been since 2011, is a Dutch nursery rhyme I played to Evie when she was a baby. But the thing is, it's only 20 seconds long and I put it on repeat, so that's kind of an an unfair advantage. It's been played 571 times. The next next top one um, uh, uh, um, actually happens to be the Sovereign Grace practice track, just a a sign of how hard Dave has us working and our practicing um, through the week. But... um, I don't want to talk about music per se, but imagine you had that kind of analysis of the bits of the Bible that you read, right? Which would be your most played Bible passages? Um, I'm not doing this to convict or challenge. I think it's great to have favourite parts of the Bible. I mean, I certainly do. If you were to take the Psalms, which would be in your top rotation of Psalms? And I think we know those of you who've been in churches for a while or been a Christian for a while, you probably know there are some classics. Psalm 23 is probably the, in the greatest hits. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp to my feet. Coyote loves a bit of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord of my soul and forget not all these benefits. Um, you love it, don't you? Yeah. Um, uh, but I don't know if there are any of you here, if I can have the passage up again, Charlotte, um, who have this psalm, Psalm 110, in your most played um, passages? I suspect not. Um, And for me, that's the case. I love the Psalms, but very rarely when I'm looking for some encouragement, I just pick this Psalm up and go, oh, the Lord said to my Lord, um, rule, and you know, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. But I want to put it to you today that there 
there are some people for whom this was, if you were to do the same analysis, this would have been number one. Those people are Jesus, the Apostles and the New Testament writers. So if you're, um, when I first showed Nikki my sermon notes, she's like, did you choose that psalm or did Dave choose it for you? Because she couldn't understand why of all the, the psalms I would choose. Um, and it, uh, I would choose such a, a seemingly difficult one and a sort of alien one. And I think it's good to be honest about those kind of responses if you're having them. And I certainly have those responses. So it's actually the New Testament. Jesus, the apostles and the New Testament writers um, who have guided me to this choice because believe it or not, it is their number one psalm. It is on the highest possible rotation. And in fact, of all the chapters in the Old Testament, this chapter, Psalm 110, is the most quoted in the New Testament. So we've got centuries between these, the New Testament and the Psalms. But the writers of the New Testament, Jesus himself is immersing himself in the Psalms and seeing Psalm 110 is exciting. So I want to do two things with you today. I want to spend a bit of time actually unpacking why I think we don't get excited about a psalm like this, about the kingship of Jesus or about a king at all. And secondly, I want to actually um, spend time with you learning from those who do see the value in it, learning from the New Testament writers who um, do see um, uh, that, that the psalm is worth getting excited about. So why we're not into it and why we need to be into it. Uh, and the point of all this um, as I mentioned in my title, is to meditate with you on Jesus, the glorious King. So let's start with this, this first problem I just mentioned to you. Why are the New Testament writers so inclined to be into the psalm and, and why perhaps are most of us not? Um, the first reason I have in response to that is that they tend to see what we don't see. And I think there's a, there's a point here where we kind of need to be guided by them and learn to see it. They saw this one little psalm as containing within it huge amounts of information about the, the figure they saw as the Christ. So just, just to fill you in, um, there's a lot of words that get bandied around in Christian circles. So Christ, Messiah, um, Son of God, they all have very similar root meanings in the Old Testament. So Christ is um, the Greek word for anointed one and Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. And they both refer to this king, um, in, in the Old Testament, they were expecting a king who would be called the Christ, the Messiah, and they expected him to be the son of David. Now, the New Testament writers were so excited because they saw this psalm as a real uh, a prophecy encoded with tons of information that could be unpacked and, and revealed um, the true character of this king. And they're excited because when they look and see Jesus of Nazareth walking down streets, healing people, and finally, when they see him um, having died and been raised again and ascended to the right hand, they look to this psalm as explaining the whole story. In a way, they're a little bit like Sherlock Holmes, if I can say it. Um, I, I'm not really into the kind of homicide dramas and crime shows, but I know there are millions of them. But I have become quietly a bit of a fan of that new show Elementary, which is like a modern retelling of Sherlock Holmes, and maybe that's embarrassing. But what I love about it is watching him in action. You know, they always start with an opening scene where Holmes walks in to a crime scene and there are you know, 20 people there and they're working away patiently trying to get at some information. He walks straight in, makes three or four observations that they've all missed, and then by reasoning inferentially from that information comes up with a whole picture, a whole scenario of what happened, a world of information from a little kernel 
of a clue. And in a way, that's kind of like the New Testament writers with this psalm. They're inferring a whole world of information that we tend to miss. Um, Augustine, the great um, church father, I think he put it really well when he said, this psalm is, and I quote, brief in words, but infinite in sense. So there's a huge freight of meaning in a little package, and we need to learn how to unpack it. That's what I want to do with you a little bit today. I mean, other people have seen the same thing. Spurgeon, um, the great 19th century preacher, thought, and I mean, this is pretty ambitious, he thought you could actually infer and derive the whole Apostles' Creed just from the psalm, that you could see the Trinity, you could see the atoning death, you could see the ascension, you could see um, the consummation of the kingdom. And you can go with them a fair way on that, um, but you need to know um, how to look. I just want to bring um, the next passage up, Charlotte, if you may. Yes, okay. So we can actually see our Saviour Jesus guiding... um, uh, We can use him as a guide for our interpretation of this psalm because we can see he's engaged in this kind of inferential unpacking. He's very excited about Psalm 110. And he uses it to stump his enemies, uh, not, not his enemies, I shouldn't say enemies, to stump those who are opposed to him, the Pharisees. Um, they've been trying to trick him in questioning, um, and he actually has a go and tricks them, Sherlock Holmes style. I'll read the passage for you. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, So what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And that that sort of answer, everyone would know that Christ is meant to be the son of David. That was promised in 2 Samuel 7 and it was common knowledge. But here's the puzzle Jesus throws back at them, courtesy of Psalm 110. He said, "Um, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, and here he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus there is relying on the fact that David authored the psalm. So he's like, if David is inspired by the Spirit, writes the psalm, how can he call his son Lord? And as you see there, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So this is a, you know, a huge... Um, rhetorical victory for Jesus and it comes back to his reading of Psalm 110 that is that he poses a puzzle they need to answer and we need to answer that is how would this um, this Christ be both David's son and David's Lord because in, in ancient Near East cultures it's, it's, a, it's a given that the descendant is, is, is uh, not as great as the forefather so if you go up the family tree you go up in order of greatness so if you've got this descendant down here how is he actually above um, David. That's the great puzzle. And the only way for that to be the case is if he is both son of David and son of God. And that is exactly what the New Testament writers point us to. All through, this is just one example, but son of David, son of God. Paul uses that in Romans and in other books as well. Um, as Ro- I was speaking to Rob Smith about this last week and he used the analogy of um, Cinderella's slipper. Psalm 110 poses this puzzle. You've got a guy who's son of David, who's Lord of David, who's also a priest, we'll get to in a moment. Whose foot is this slipper going to fit? And the New Testament writers delight in the fact that it fits Jesus of Nazareth's foot. So that's the first um, thing I wanted just to draw your attention to, that we need to um, see what they see. We often miss um, what they see. 
And we need to learn to and be guided. Um, let the New Testament writers be our model in what they're seeing in the Old Testament. And if, you're, if you are struggling with reading the Old Testament on your own, um, if, if, and it is a really difficult thing at points, that, this is just a really great rule to bear in mind. Let the New Testament scriptures interpret the Old Testament for you. Um, they are our model uh, and our guide. And this is just, as a side point, something that we're going to be looking to do with you guys more um, in the biblical studies ministry um, that we're going to be starting next year. But the second reason, aside from just not seeing the information, aside from not being Sherlock Holmes-like, we also um, face the problem that this is pretty culturally foreign to us. I mean, people in Sydney simply don't drive around thinking in terms of kings and priests, I would suggest. Um, and it's actually a pretty, apart from just, it's not just a language issue, there is, um, and this is the one bit I promise not to be too much of a historian, which is my day job, um, but historians have traced uh, the emergence of a, what you might call a democratic ethos about 200 years ago, and especially in the United States. It's an ethos that pervaded religion and politics um, in, in equal measures. And so the very idea that there would be a king who had a divine rule, a right to rule, just simply became illegitimate in, in a few decades. I mean, so the Americans booted out King George III, but around the world, the idea of democratic rule as being normative, as being the right way to create government, just, just swept the globe and changed millennia of thinking about government. So people in Western countries increasingly came to see government as derived from and as representing the people. And there's that famous Lincoln quote that government should be of the people, by the people, for the people. But it's really another way of saying we rule ourselves. Government's only legitimate insofar as it's us ruling ourselves. So in a culture like that, who would want even the idea of a king? Why would we get up in the morning and get excited about a passage about a king? But it's not just culture. I mean, cultural explanations only get you so far. They change and they shift. And the human urge to make ourselves king is as old uh, as sin itself. In fact, it is at the essence of our, of our what the Bible calls sin, our wrong doing. Our, in fact, our wrong state of being in relation to God. That is that we usurp his sovereignty, his prerogative as creator to be our king. So it seems like there are old sinful human inclinations, but they're kind of maybe amplified by our culture, if you like. And finally, there's a third reason I want to um, explore um, with you briefly about how perhaps it is we don't get excited about this psalm. Um, part of it is that we don't know where we fit. And this kind of goes back to what Rob very helpfully said for us last week, that many of the psalms are mirrors on the soul. They kind of reflect back to us our feelings and our experiences. But there are some, he said, some which are windows. That is, they let us in onto a truth, onto a reality about God. And this would be in that latter camp, a, a window and not a mirror. But one of the great problems when we read Psalms like this is we look for where, where am I? Like if I read the Lord is my shepherd, I know where I sit, I, I'm the one who has the shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. But you read Psalm 110, if I can have it back um, up, that would be the first slide. Thanks, Charlotte. Um, and you ask, uh, where, where do I appear? I know that I'm not a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Um, I know I'm not David. Um, so where do we fit? Let's have a look at the characters then before we move on, because this will help us as we go and look at the, the benefit and the beauty of this psalm. So 
In your Bibles, I haven't got it on the screen, but it should say it's written by David, so a psalm of David. And that's a really important thing as we've seen in Jesus' argument in Matthew 22. So what's David doing? Well, a handy way just to break down this psalm is he's reporting on um, two words. Um, Scholars call it an oracle. I mean, in a way, we could just call it a a conversation almost, um, though it's maybe a bit informal. But he's listening in on this extraordinary moment, this extraordinary word from one party to another. And the parties are there. You see that funny first one there, how there's a capital, uh, a Lord in uppercase and a Lord in lowercase. That's just what our English Bibles do when they have two different words in the original. The first one is the word for Yahweh, the, the particular God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The second one is a more generic word, Lord, so my Lord, so somebody who's above you. You might say, yes, my Lord, if you weren't so inclined. But Yahweh is the name of the Creator God. So we've got Yahweh, the Creator God, says to this other little L Lord, so above David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And so there's a, that's the first um, sort of um, oracle, if you like. And then the second one in quote marks is in verse 4. Um, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then just to stop there, it's an extraordinary thing. There's one reason to get excited about this psalm is that we are here on holy ground in many ways. This is a word between, as we know from the New Testament, between two members of the Godhead, between Father and between Son. This is God swearing an oath to his Son, guaranteeing the nature of and effectiveness of his work as king and as priest. Uh, and I think it's, it's worth, just as Spurgeon says, worth bearing in mind what precious, what precious and holy ground we have to be eavesdropping in on that conversation in this psalm. But that's all to say that that whole bit's not about you, at least not directly. Um, if we go on, there are other figures, and I, I just want to point out where we might find ourselves um, when we come back to it at the end. There are, there's Melchizedek, who's a mysterious figure in Genesis 14. Um, I'm not going to have time to really unpack all that that is significant about Melchizedek today. I think we're going to need possibly another whole sequel sermon on that, um, uh, drawing on Hebrews. There's enough just to say about the rest of the psalm, I think, today. Um, But he's another one of the cast of characters. But there are two other groups we need to just look at before we move on. There are the, um, in verse 3, these willing soldiers, uh, where it says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So if you are in Christ, if you're a believer, that's where you appear in this psalm. You are part uh, of this glorious, young, youthful, vital army. And there's there's a lot of debate over what that whole dew and womb of the morning thing means. Um, but, but the consensus is that it means something about just you've got this army that turns up ready for battle. They're fresh, they're vibrant, they're ready to go. And it's part of the glory of the king that he marshals his forces um, like that. And so I wanted to um, reassure my dad at this point. As you know, going back to the members meeting, there's a pie graph of the different demographic slices and there's a very thin slice for over 60s. So we've got, we've got a one-man over 60s contingent and I just wanted to reassure dad that I think there is still room in this youthful army for um, an over-60s um, contingent. Um, but that's where we appear. Um, where we don't want to appear, of course, is on the other end of the king's judgment. 
But I'm going to come to how we can avoid that uh, at the end. So there's the problem of, of uh, where we see ourselves in the psalm. Um, and then there's just the problem, perhaps, of how you see this as even relating um, to your needs. And I was thinking about it in very real terms this last few weeks as I've been preparing um, and thinking about what are, the, what are the kind of felt needs I have on my radar at the moment. I wonder what they are for you. I mean, I know um, clearly there are some who have been and still are probably this morning in the grips of real and profound sorrow at the moment. And you feel a need for comfort and strength and assurance and hope. And I hope that today addresses you in some ways. There might be some of you who um, are not in that season at all and, and full of um, a sense of, of potential, of, of, of energy, of hoping for success in various parts of your life. But I reckon most of us are probably somewhere in the middle, and that's at least where, where I've been living in the last few weeks, just pressed by the daily mundane hardships of life. And when I was thinking about my, my sense of my needs this week and those of you who don't know, we have a two-year-old, um, Evie, who's um, beautiful and akin to a very energetic puppy dog at points. And we have um, a little strapping five-month-old boy, Will. And, and, and for Nikki and I, our greatest needs have simply felt a little bit like this sleep, peace, order, time by ourselves. And so I'm writing this psalm about Melchizedek and I'm uh, writing a sermon, sorry, about Psalm 110 and Melchizedek and thinking, what does this have to do with this busy world of changing nappies and marking essays and writing classes, trying to eat dinner before nine, trying to get to bed before 12, taking my daughter to the doctor for an ear infection, having to go back to the chemist because I was so tired, I left the medicine out overnight and destroyed the medicine. Um, what does it have to do with this kind of crazy everyday world? And I think the answer is that this psalm lifts our eyes, lifts my eyes, to our greater need and to one who is putting things Right, so I want to say to you today, our hardships are not to be trivialised, to make light of, but they can be relativised, and that's a, not meaning to create too techy a word there, but relativised, they can be put into perspective, put against a, in a greater story in which God will put things right and indeed is meeting my needs and your needs in ways we can't yet fully grasp or imagine. And this psalm shows us that unexpectedly, perhaps, God's way of doing that is through a victorious and glorious king. So that's what I want to turn to now the second, um, in the second half, is just um, what kind of king is this? What kind of king is this and why can we get excited? Why Jesus is the king we need? And it's, it's, it's worth just remembering before we press on because I am going to look at why he's the king we need. But... Just thinking about it logically, of course, he doesn't have to be the king we need. He can just be king. A king's prerogative is to be king and to do as he wills. It just so happens that this king graciously, undeservedly, does make it his mission, his victory, uh, to be the king we need as well. So let's push on. So the, I've got um, four points I just want to unpack with you briefly about what kind of king he is. But to do that, we actually need to just get a sense of what this psalm meant to its hearers and what um, it might mean to us today. So Psalm 110 is one of like a, a set, if you like. There are a handful of them in the psalms. The other big one you'd want to compare, if you're interested in following this up, would be Psalm 2. Both of them are the two great royal psalms. They're about the king 
And they use all this language of splendor and might. Psalm 2 uses the image of smashing nations like pots on the ground. They're all about rulership and they're all about this Christ who will rule. And so Psalm 110 that we have before us today is full of this imagery, this poetry if you like, and it's all designed to evoke a sense of the incomparable power and splendor of the king. So that's probably something to write down if you're, if you're wanting to understand the big point. It's designed to evoke a sense of the incomparable power and splendor of the king. And again, one reason we might not see that straight away is because we have other images when we think of conquest. I think that's Evie. Um, but Charlotte, can I pull up the pictures that the... Yeah, these, these perhaps are kind of just... Because, again, my day job is US history teacher. So I've just cho- chosen US history, not because I'm trying to glorify the US army in any way, but I think because of its place in film and television in our culture, these are the kinds of images that we associate with conquest and with the glory of, of victory, military victory. So I've got a photo of the Normandy landings in 1944 on the French coast. It was the, the beginning of the end for the, um, German, um, the Germans in World War II. And you can see... An element I want to bring out is just the way that they were able to amass this huge force. Um, and that's something going on in Psalm 110. The king there is able to amass an enormous force like that because of his splendor. He has that kind of command that troops gather willingly um, at the click of his finger. Um, on the right there, we don't really think in terms of royal scepters anymore. I think that's one of the things. One of the, the verses in Psalm 110 is about rule, extend your scepter. In the modern era in nation states, you know, I'm sounding like a historian, I apologize, but um, we've, we've turned to flags, extending the flag around the globe. This is what the United States um, certainly uh, did in World War II and after. And this is um, the famous image of the flag being raised on um, Iwo Jima in the campaign against Japan at the end of the war. And it was a symbol of triumph, a hard-fought battle. Boom, we're putting the flag in, this island is ours now. It's again like the, like the scepter, going forth, extending conquest. Uh, and then finally, Charlotte, if I can have the next slide. Um, this is a, a, an artist's depiction at the time, so I could have had a photo, but I thought sometimes art's even uh, more evocative and, and better for our purposes. Just the complete destruction of the German city of Cologne. Now, I'm not trying to endorse um, the carpet bombing of Germany in any stretch, uh, by any means, um, and it's a, it's a deeply complex problem, but this was what um, the Allies turned to in the end of the war. Complete destruction, firebombing of German cities. But I just think it's, it's helpful to kind of have that sort of image in our head because in our period, that's more along the lines of military conquest than, than um, in terms of the imagery we're used to. Um, uh, you might think of other ones, the roping down of, of Saddam Hussein's statues in Baghdad as tanks roll in. Or if you're Dave Taylor, you might think of the good old rule Britannia. Britannia rules the waves and miss the glory days of the British Navy. But this is the Old Testament equivalent. These psalms, these royal psalms, are celebrations, like almost songs of conquest, of just how extensive um, uh, this and, and, and complete this victory is. So if I can go back to Psalm 110, Charlotte. Thank you. You've been very helpful there. Um, so the key images that we've got the, um, in verse 1, the enemies being a footstool. So you've got to think these are the equivalent of the flags and the tanks. Enemies made a footstool. In the, in the ancient Near East, when you defeated an enemy, um, you might put your foot on his neck. That was kind of a, a, a practice. And it became kind of a, um, a symbol of victory, of conquest. And it turned in over time, um, over time into this image of your enemies being put under your feet or made a footstool. 
So we've got the conquest of the king in that sense. We've got the scepter going out and we've got in verse 5 and 6 the destruction and killing of enemies. Not just one-off casualties, but whole chiefs and chiefdoms, if you like. Not just foot soldiers, but the very heads of nations. And it's global. In these Psalms, it's really important that um, the power of this king, this son of David, is not just going to be um, uh, local. It's not just going to be in Jerusalem. It's going to be global. So how did Jesus um, fulfill this? I mean, it doesn't seem like he started a new empire that was greater than the Romans or greater than Alexander the Great or greater than Genghis Khan, which would be the kind of picture you have here. And this is really what I want to um, uh, dwell on for the rest of the time with you, is the unexpected nature of his kingdom. It's almost like we see in the Gospel Jesus saying, yes, you see that splendour? You see that glory in Psalm 110? Well, that is mine. But my kingship is different, radically different. And it's different um, in some really key ways. And that's what I, what I want to explore with you. Is to make sense of the psalm, we have to go through the gospel, through the New Testament, as we do with every psalm. And we see that his kingship is different, firstly, by its means, the kind of kingship um, that he enacted. Um, if you were reading Psalm 110 and you were a first century Jew and you thought this guy might be the Messiah you'd be doing the maths and you'd be thinking, well, the Romans have got it coming because according to this psalm, there's going to be some serious carnage of the king's enemies. And that's exactly what the disciples thought. Um, Even right up until the crucifixion, remember James and John, they come up to Jesus and they start asking for senior covenant posts once the new kingdom comes in and the Romans have been destroyed. And nobody gets it right up until it's revealed to them um, after the crucifixion and the resurrection that this, this was the victory Um, of the king. So um, there's a passage we could bring up from Mark um, where Jesus, I'll leave you to read that on your own, but where Jesus rebukes James and John and calls them and says, that's not the kind of king I'm going to be. The Gentiles might lord it, might, might flex their kingship, but I have not come, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that last line, ransom, um, is really key because ultimately, as we see in the Gospel, the great victory is the cross of all things. The victory of the king is the death of the king. And if we come back to Psalm 110, it's the most extraordinary thing because we see in that psalm a sword being wielded, bodies being heaped up. We come to the Gospel, we see that sword first and foremost turned in against the king. We see Jesus taking the sword for his subjects. And so the bodies heaped up in Psalm 110 are fulfilled primarily in his limp, broken body being taken off the cross and placed in the grave. And I just thought of that song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That You, My King, Would Die For Me? This was a great surprise um, to everyone and it ought to still stop us in our tracks and amaze us that this king, this royal king, um, this one who, whose title was the whole earth would first turn the sword against himself. But that, that's his means, that's his means of being king, but it also signalled that, that his strategy for being king signalled a whole different ballgame. It meant he was taking on a whole different kind of enemy than the conventional emperors and kings of the Old Testament. His enemies were different, and unlike um, 
unlike his earthly geopolitical kingdoms, if you like, he took on the far greater um, enemies, the enemies that were obstacles on his mission to rescue, save and restore. And the New Testament, just to give you a brief sample, it, it often uses this language of victory, of kingship, of destruction um, for Jesus' enemies. So you could look at passages that are to do with the, um, Jesus' victory over the devil and the devil's works. Peter says in the book of Acts that God anointed, which is made king, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And this is this tactical warfare against the devil and it's a warfare that um, in his miracles and in the, the good works he did foreshadowed his ultimate victory in rolling back the dominion of the devil. So that's enemy number one. Enemy number two he takes on is um, sin itself. Extraordinary. Sin and its effects are said to be destroyed by the victory of this king in his death and resurrection. So a passage you might look at there. Do you have Colossians 2 there, Charlotte? You do. Thank you. Um, Uh, And you, I'll just read this one, you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them in him. So God triumphing over these enemies in Christ. Um, just to get, that's just to give you a flavour. Look, there are, two, there are two, as well as Jesus, there are two other parties dying there. These are the enemies of Christ. These are the enemies that are being destroyed. That is um, the code, the record of debt that we have. He's destroyed it. That's the victory of the king that he's destroyed the record of debt standing over you and I. And secondly, the rulers and authorities, these spiritual rulers and authorities that are part of this whole oppressive structure of sin and debt and guilt, he's destroyed and triumphed. And finally, and this blew me away this week, um, if we've got his war against, his triumph against the devil, his triumph against sin and its effects, there's a third enemy that he has in his sights. And this is just extraordinary. The New Testament applies Psalm 110 to tell us that Jesus is taking on the enemy of death itself. The number one final enemy over over which Jesus has begun to triumph and will triumph is death. This is a king who is going to kill death. 1 Corinthians 15 is where Paul makes this um, claim. If I could have that one, Charlotte. And it's in the middle of an awesome passage, the, the best passage in scripture on the, the whole idea of the resurrection. And he, Paul comes back, like as I've been telling you, all these guys do, to Psalm 110. And he quotes it without even saying where it's from. Um, but he says, For he must reign, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's the allusion to Psalm 110. That it's happening. It has started, but it's a process that's still being implemented. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So if we go back to Psalm 110 and we sort of picture the grenades exploding, the tanks wheeling in, the bombs dropping, the scepter of the king being extended, the sword being wielded, the enemies, the, the, the enemies that Jesus has his, foot, uh, he has his foot on their neck, the enemies are sin, the enemies are the devil, and the enemy is death itself. A king who puts to death death is a king 
we really need. And this leads me to a, a, a third way that Jesus' kingship is different. So it was different in his means, it was different in his enemies, um, different from what people expected. Um, but the fact that he can put to death death means that his kingship is different from normal kingships in that it is cosmic in scale and effect. So I'm using the word cosmic deliberately and I don't mean to evoke Star Wars or intergalactic warfare. Um, but I do mean cosmos. So the whole created order. That's the, the word the New Testament uses, the cosmos. And Jesus' victory. And what, what I mean by that is that it, it's the whole fabric of heaven and earth. His victory, his reconstruction of the world is going to be so thorough that nothing less than a whole new heavens and a whole new earth um, will suffice as an environment in which the life he brings will flourish. The death of death requires a whole new system of life. And that's what he's doing. And so I think I just wanted to briefly touch on a point here that I think in, in Christian circles today, perhaps in our church, we very often talk about heaven as a departure from the earth uh, and is that being our need. And it's, there's kind of a truth in that. But if we were to be more biblical in our language, we would actually speak more about a new heavens and a new earth. That is, he's not disbanding this. The mission of the king, the king's final victory will be to put things right. And that's where your needs and my needs, my needs for sleep and rest and every other trivial thing I get worried about will finally resolve themselves into this, this kind of joyous new order. So I want to just bring up, this is a passage you may not have seen coming. This is from Isaiah. And I don't necessarily want to read it all, but um, I might actually, and I'll pass quickly over the next one. Um, just because you probably, you may not have read this, and it's just an extraordinary thing, and I think it gives us a clue for the kind of scale, um, the kind of depth of effectiveness of this king's victory and, the, and what we are looking forward to. I'll read, For behold, this is the Lord speaking, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, the, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. You, if you know your Bibles, you would know that Revelation 21 is almost a direct um, quote from this. So it's a really important theme in Old Testament and New. And, and it means God means business about this. Um, but get a sense of how the whole order, not just individual souls, but the whole creational order is going to be restored. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And get this last bit. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not destroy, sorry, shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is a kingdom where even the animals get on. There is something that has happened, the New Testament tells us. The next one, um, Charlotte, is Romans 8. And I, I won't read this one because I'll leave this one for yourself. I want to bring this up just so you know I'm not just going off-road and making up something. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 8. There's been something deeply wrong, not just in 
uh, humans, but in the whole created order as a result of this sin and death. And it's, that, it's the victory of the king which will be putting things right. And Paul says here in Romans 8, the creation um, itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And it talks about how we wait for that with groaning. So we're talking here, I'll leave you to explore that passage. It's a tremendous one in Romans 8 and one, again, we probably pass over too easily. But we're talking here about a redemption of the very fabric of the universe. And this is why, going back to Psalm 110, this king needs to be working hand in hand, as he does in that psalm, with the creator Yahweh himself. And in fact, it is the creator made king and nothing less than the creator king would bring about this victory. And so finally, you're probably thinking, um, I don't see you know, lions getting on with lambs and I think snakes are still pretty dangerous. And that is very true. Don't think that we have got there yet. Uh, it leads us to one of the great implications of the psalm as we close. And that is that Jesus already rules as king. But the New Testament, when they look at this psalm, the number one thing they actually use it to say is that we are in a between time. We are between um, the... Uh, in that first quote, sit at my right hand, we are between that half of the sentence and the second half of the sentence, until I make your enemies a footstool. Uh, and this is how we can characterise our whole era in salvation history. Um, some people characterise our current era as being the era of, say, Gen Y, um, these ambitious young upstarts. I think I'm borderline Gen X, so I can look on at the Gen Ys and sort of tut-tut, um, and their the fancy Apple iPhones and so forth. Um, there are ways of characterising eras, generations. Some people say we're in the age of Facebook. I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know if that's true. Others say we're in an age of crisis of, um, in, of the environment or, or um, crisis of capitalism. And there may be truth to all of that, but the era that we need to understand ourselves as being in, theologically speaking, is the era of that one word, until. That word in the middle of the sentence. All through the New Testament, the first half of that sentence, sit at my right hand, is said to have already happened. Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. As he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So he is king and king indeed. But as, in a very common sense way, the writer of the Hebrews points out, uh, at this time we don't see everything subject, um, we don't see everything under his feet. That's Hebrews 1 verse 8. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we are waiting. We are, going back to my D-Day, Normandy landings, we are between D-Day and V-Day. And we know, unlike the Normandy soldiers, that V-Day will happen. It's been guaranteed. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. That's the metaphor that Paul uses, not D-Day, but first fruits, guaranteeing the rest of the harvest. And we are between his ascension and his coming back. So as we close, we've got to think, what does it mean to live in this age of until, of, of kingship, but waiting for final kingship? And there are two, um, well, there are a few implications. The first one is that we need to be right with the king. Uh, we sung this morning about um, him returning with trumpet sounding, and indeed that is true. 2 Thessalonians um, says that he will return with, um, 
with trumpets sounding and to judge the living and the dead. And there will be retribution against his enemies. The only way to take shelter from this king is in this king. Psalm 2 has a really curious line in it talking about this kind of king figure. It says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So friends, that's, that's for us. What do you do with a king who is this splendid, who is coming back, who recognise that he is mighty and he is holy? He is not safe, but he is king. There's that, there's that great um, passage in Narnia, you might, in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, um, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. The children are talking about Aslan. What's he like, they say? What, and they're asking those who've um, got some knowledge. This is Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And one of the girls asks, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I mean, it's a great image that Lewis gives us, that, that Christ is a lion. It's the, it's the same image we see in Revelation. Jesus is lamb, but also lion. And friends, he's not safe. And he implores you, he is coming back, so be reconciled to him now. As I mentioned um, earlier, we're going to have to do another whole sermon, I think, on the priestly function that this king plays. But just to give you the bottom line value, when it says he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, there had been no priest king since Melchizedek. All through Old Testament Israel, anybody who tried to combine the two offices was judged and wasn't meant to do it. Um, But the bottom line value for this king being a priest in the order of Melchizedek is that his victory as king brings you back to God. He's not only king, he is priest. And the two offices are combined in him. And as Hebrews... Do we have Hebrews up there, Charlotte? I'm not sure. Yes, Hebrews 7, um, 21 to 25, thank you. Um, It's, again, one of the applications of Psalm 110. Um, The writer quotes it, I won't read it again. But just go to verse 25. It's really worth underlining in your Bibles. Because of this oath, because of this swearing by the Lord. I mean, God doesn't often swear oaths, right? You want to listen when he swears an oath. But the oath guarantees that the priestly work of this king, the work of bringing back people to God, the work of reconciling people, the oath guarantees that, and I quote, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This king who died for you, his work is so effective uh, that it trumps all other work, all other efforts to get back to God. Only the king can save you from the king. So I wonder if if there are some here today uh, that don't yet know. I mean, maybe you've been coming to church for a while and maybe you are been coming to activities we do and that, and that we'd love to have you. But there's a time you need to ask yourself, am I right with the king? Have I been reconciled to him? What do I do in the face of this king? Well, I want to encourage you. Hear his plea to be reconciled with him, to take refuge in him. And there are two ways to do that. What you do when you meet a king like this, you repent and you change your thinking. That's what repent means, is change your thinking. Recognize him as king and you trust. You say, you've done it all. I lean on you. I rest on you. And so maybe you could say to yourself, um, say in your, in your own mind, now or some point today or this week, and I'd be happy to, or any of the leaders would be happy to 
and pray this with you. God, I realize you're my king. I am not, and I've been trying to run things how I want, but I need forgiveness. And were it not for your work, I would be rightly judged. But I trust in you. If you make that your prayer, I promise he will hear you. That's the promise the king gives. It's not my promise, it's his. So what, for those who have already made, put their trust, those of you who have been made right with this king, keep resting in his kingly work. Keep resting in the all-sufficiency of his work as priest king who has defeated sin, who has defeated um, the devil, and who will and has started defeating death. I just want to leave you with some encouragements for how to live in this between time, the age of until. first point I just want to um, encourage you in is in your work for him. And I don't necessarily want to draw a line between secular work and sacred work. In Christ, all we do is for him as king. That's what um, Colossians 3 says, to work unto, um, unto Christ, as unto him, not unto men. But particularly... I want to, want to encourage you to, be, to take heart and be strengthened in your labours for him in all areas of life. And it's amazing that, like we saw in the psalm, he does, he doesn't need us, but that he does graciously use an army, you and me, a ragtag army. You notice there was that little phrase, he clothes them in holy garments. Those garments are from him. So he prays him, he cleans us up, dresses us, washes us, gets us ready for battle and puts us to work. As ragtag and as frail and as, as sinful in our own as we are, he cleans us up and uses us. So I want to encourage you in everything, in your building of the local church, in your labor, in prayer, in your imitation of Christ, in your love for the poor, in your proclamation, your efforts to promote the gospel, um, even if it's the most mundane feeling thing, it's sometimes so easy to lose sight of the significance of it. When you look down that roster chart you get and you think, oh man, I'm really on set up this week. Be strong in whatever it is. Be strong. I'm going to use the words of Paul again. I don't know if I have it. I don't, sorry. Charlotte, don't need to worry. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 ends like this, waiting for this great resurrection age. Paul concludes, and it's a beautiful thing for us to hear. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When you're working um, on the king's charge, when you are working for the king, nothing you do will be in vain. In fact, what you do now echoes into eternity. And there is really no other job about which you can say that. We know that all things pass, but it's only the word of God that lasts forever. But you, as part of the, 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 the building of his kingdom, what you do now, he sees and he redeems and he uses and it echoes into eternity. So be strong. And same in your, your struggle with sin. I, I was encouraged by this passage just in maybe you, um, you too, are, you, you've, you've been battling um, sins that have been besetting you for a long time. And it's so, again so easy to become wearied, to lose sight of where this all fits in, of seeing it just as some sort of routine exercise and trying to be more self controlled. But no, it's not. Lift your eyes and see that your battle to put to death sin in your own members is part of his, this king's victory. It's his scepter, his sword being applied, his kingdom coming in your heart and in your life. And so he will win. I want to encourage you. There is victory and as priest 
which is awesome. He will strengthen you now. And third and finally, what I, what I want to just conclude with is what better thing can we do before a display of royal splendour such as this than just praise? And that's what we can start now and, and something that will, will culminate in heaven. I w- want to just finish by um, looking at this little um, passage in Revelation where there's this throne room full of every living creature, full of angels, full of, you name it, they're there. And they recognize this king for who he is. The king who is put to death, death. The king who will be and is making all things new. The king who's purchased a whole kingdom of people from every nation at the expense of his own blood. And they just can't help but sing. And so I want to finish just with reading this with you and encourage you to read, to jo- as we read, to join with them in your heart and um, we will sing, we'll actually break out in song after that as well. But let's read this to, to close. Um, what an amazing scene. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, the king, and to the lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I'm just going to pray and ask the band to come back up. Um, Oh Lord, we have only glimpsed just a little bit today of the splendour of the King. Like the, the, the people here pictured in Revelation, let us fall down in worship. Lord, let us submit to the power of this King and let us rest, rest with all we have in the victories he has accomplished and let us wait with hope. Hope is an anchor for our soul for his final victory. And we praise him, we praise you, and we give you thanks for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.